Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Welcome to America's 360. I'm John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, 2023 is off to a fast start in the Americas. A headliner event just concluded in Mexico City, the meeting of the so-called Three Amigos, the 10th Annual North American Leaders Summit attempted to set the tone for continued trilateral cooperation on trade, migration, security, climate, and more. And that's what we're going to be debriefing today, uh, what occurred and what we can expect moving forward. Then a little later in the program, we'll have an update on the situation in Brazil for you. But first, please say hello to Mexico Institute Director Andrew Rudman and Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands or as I like to think of them, the two amigos. Welcome, gentlemen. John, hi, Chris. You know, I'm at, I'm, I'm at an age and uh, a place in, in pop culture references where the three amigos to me are Chevy Chase and Martin Shores and, uh, and uh, Steve Martin. We're not talking about them today. Uh, we're talking about the, the leaders of Mexico, the United States, and Canada. And gentlemen, before we talk about what happened in the uh, at the summit, give us your sense of what the expectations were during the lead up. Uh, was anybody expecting anything seismic to occur? Chris, let's start with you. I think I think the first exciting thing was that it was happening. You know, we we spent four years uh, during the Trump administration in which we didn't have summits, and Canada a couple of times when it was its turn to host these meetings, which go back to two thousand five originally in the George W. Bush administration, twice Canada failed to host. So we had years where we didn't meet at all, even before then. So the fact that we were getting back on track, uh, we had the United States hosted here in Washington in 2021. Uh, Mexico was hosting officially for 2022. And as the year went on, we, we kept looking at the dates and running out of 2022 available options. Uh, but we still actually managed to have it fairly fairly early in 2023, and, and Mexico was willing and able to host. So, so in a lot of ways, it was the expectation was, or the hope was, that it would happen. It did, and all the leaders showed up. Uh, you know, you might have seen the Wall Street Journal had a, a somewhat snarky op-ed in which they said, you know, all three leaders are not exactly behaving well on trade. Maybe they'll go to get together and cancel the USMCA. So there were some kind of wild expectations that were out there in the media. The fact was they didn't cancel uh, free trade. They didn't break any furniture. Uh, they actually seemed to get along decently well. So from just a, a showing up and getting it done point of view, I think this summit met expectations, at least from a Canada, US or Canadian perspective. Uh, Andrew, what do you think? Oh, I, I would agree, <clears throat> Chris. I think that sometimes people tend to sort of put too much emphasis on these summits or, or their expectations are are unrealistic. You know, it, it would have, in fact, been uh, a bombshell if something big had happened. What you really, I think, see, what you saw here and what you see normally is it's a chance for the three leaders to give some direction to their respective governments, their respective executive branches, and set out 
um, really a, a list of to-dos uh, between now and the next uh, North American Leaders Summit, uh, presumably sometime in 24 in Canada. So I, I agree with you. I, I think it, it did, in fact, deliver on what reasonable people should have understood to be the expectations for the summit. So, so I, you know, and, and part of the expect, right, these are three stable relationships, right? So there's no expectation for anything dramatic needing to happen. There are thorny issues to be dealt with. But in some ways, I'm, I'm thinking, what's the headline coming out of the summit, right? It, is it return to normalcy that we're back on track for annual meetings? Well, I don't want to push the your buttons, John. You mentioned earlier that you're in an age in popular culture where you remember the old three amigos. and But I would say that these are not only three stable relationships, they're three mature relationships. We've been integrating going back to at least NAFTA, and that's you know 30 years ago now. Um, and what that has meant is that the everyday business of government has really gone into the weeds. I mean, coordinating Canada-U.S. relations, and I think increasingly U.S.-Mexico relations, is often about aligning regulations, dealing with the appropriate size of a widget, or trying to figure out how people participating in a trusted traveler program, uh, how their data can be shared across the border, it, or, or even how we're going to align supply chains or build electric vehicles together. And so day to day, that's managed by people in the government uh, who work very hard uh, in their technical areas of specialty. And the role of the leaders is to kind of give the political blessing and impetus to continuing to cooperate. They don't make the headlines. They just kind of review the progress, maybe nudge it where it's getting a bit stuck. Uh, and where the issues are really contentious, perhaps they begin negotiations on how we can resolve you know, some of those issues. It, it becomes more political than administrative, but much of the relationship relies on their periodic check-ins and nudging along a process that is whole of government and includes quite a lot of people in all three countries. Is that too dull a description? Maybe it's too Canadian uh, a way of looking at things, Andrew. Andrew, was it was it meaningful to Mexico to host? Oh, ab- absolutely. I, I think for Lopez Obrador, despite being a president who doesn't express a lot of interest in foreign policy, I think having President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau come to visit him, President Biden landed at the new airport, which, which AMLO considers one of his flagship achievements in his administration. Uh, so they made a big deal of that that he was landing at IFA instead of the the traditional international airport. Um, AMLO got to ride in the president's limo, the Beast, which uh, one of Chris's team did some research. Uh, very few foreign leaders have ever ridden in the vehicle, so so those sorts of things, while symbolic, they they I think they reflect what one of the things President Biden sought to do, which was further strengthen that personal relationship between he and, and Lopez Obrador. Um, you know, they do, there is friction on occasion. I, I, much has been pointed out of, of during the, the bilat um, Lopez Obrador criticized the United States for not doing more for Latin America and, and president Biden politely, but firmly pushed back pointing out that, that uh, you know, what U S foreign assistance is greater than any other countries. And, and also made, I think, a really important point, which is that our obligations extend well beyond the hemisphere. You know, aside from that, I think the point was to strengthen that relationship, which is getting back to Chris's point. What it means is when the bureaucracy encounters a hiccup, 
they can go to their respective leaders who can then make a phone call and cut through the red tape or, or cut the knot. Uh, but the idea, of course, as Chris said, is these are regular routine professional relationships that should operate without the need for uh, leader engagement on, on a constant basis. You mentioned the relationship building and building a rapport. You know, a lot of the expectations for our president Biden was here's an old hand who's been around forever, served as vice president for eight years, has a big Rolodex, knows everybody around the world. Tell us about these relationships, the 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 trio and the three amigos and how well they know each other, how much personal rapport they have, what kind of history they have. Well, I'm, I'm going to maybe start on this one. Um because Justin Trudeau has been prime minister since 2015. So obviously dating back all the way to the Obama-Biden administration when Joe Biden was vice president. And because Joe Biden was so involved in international relations over a long career in the Senate, he actually knew uh, Justin Trudeau's father, who was a previous prime minister, Pierre Trudeau in Canada. And over the years through international uh, meetings and such, they've had a lot of chance to interact. It's uh, at the start of the Biden administration, Canadians pointed to the fact that at the end of Obama's term, after Donald Trump was elected, uh, Joe Biden made a personal trip up to Ottawa to say, you know, Justin Trudeau, you're going to carry the torch for some of the progressive ideas on climate change and other things that our administration tried to carry forward, while Donald Trump probably won't carry that torch uh, in Washington. So so it was a very deep and, and, uh, and rich relationship to start with. And I'll add one other thing, which I think is important here, because it's very much what Andrew was saying about Mexico. Although we are obviously different sizes of population and wealth and so on, the Canadians really prize that sense that at a person-to-person level, we're equal. And we've designed North America on this idea of three separate but equal sovereignties that puts a lot of pressure on coordination, collaboration to get things done, but is premised on that. Forget the size, forget who's the leader of the free world and all that. We are peers. And I think it's so it, it, it may be valuable to AMLO. It's also valuable to Justin Trudeau. And that respect and what comes with it really makes a huge difference to him politically at home, but also I think personally. And it's the foundation of a really hopefully good relationship. I think, you know, the the AMLO Biden relationship and probably the AMLO Trudeau relationship w- would be different uh, because AMLO only took office in, in December of 2018. And, and because he's not a, a foreign policy guy, you know, I, I don't know whether Biden had ever met him before. I don't want to say he never did, but they certainly had to build a relationship. And, and folks who follow it will recall that um, AMLO was one of the last leaders to recognize Biden's victory. AMLO uh, didn't condemn the January 6th uh, effort to overturn the election. So they, you know, they sort of started off on on a bit of a rocky foot. I think the Biden administration has really worked hard to both improve the the relationship, the personal relationship, and also make sure that that bit of rocky personal relationship initially didn't impede the institutional relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's uh, take a look at what occurred, uh, right? With expectations, you're not solving, say a big issue like migration in a two-day meeting. But what progress was made, if any? What expectations were established for follow-up? And maybe if you could think about this in two sides of a coin. One is, what are the real challenging issues that maybe 
some things were teed up as far as what can be done moving forward. And then where's the low hanging fruit where cooperation, trilateral cooperation can be enhanced relatively quickly? Well, I think um, maybe I'll, I'll I'll start. You know, as as you alluded to, John, they, this wasn't a place to solve things, but they did have, I, I think, maybe three key issues among among many that they focused on. Uh, and if you look at the deliverables, you can see uh, that they focused on these on, on economic competitiveness or North American competitiveness and reshoring was one. Migration was a second, and um, and and drugs a third. And they made substantial commitments on all of those to continue to cooperate. I think on the uh, supply chain issues, I think the commitment to do some critical minerals mapping and some semiconductor supply chain mapping, those are really significant. And maybe those aren't the things that, that wind up being a splash in the New York Times, but those are things that really do move the ball forward that have the three governments together understand what critical minerals do we have? Where are they? And, you know, what does that mean in terms of our, our access to them? Um, one of the things in the list of deliverables that, that I think is really indicative of how the relationship works, even though it may seem really sort of silly is the agreement to a common standard for uh, EV charging stations on both sides of the borders which is critically important if you want to develop an EV industry and let me know that I could drive my EV from Washington to Mexico City. That's a point that Assistant Secretary Brian Nichols made in an event we had before the the NALS at the Wilson Center. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the electronic vehicles and charging and not being the the sexy New York Times headlines, but when it comes to -to day-to-day life and the management among the three nations, you know, when you're in the trenches of how people live, this stuff really matters. That that's exactly it. That's exactly right. Chris, your thoughts on uh, on any progress made, anything that's teed up, or any low hanging fruit maybe available for some uh, you know quick improvements of the cooperation among the nations. One thing, and maybe as a as a macro coming to start out, it, one of the things that makes this current configuration of leaders really interesting is they all come from the progressive center left of their national political. Um, systems. And although they view issues differently, you can't always compare left to left to left from one country to another. They share a commitment on climate change. They share a commitment on human rights. They share a commitment on working to lift people out of poverty and, and address some common issues. And so I think that has been one of the areas like if you compare this with, with past summits, you can see that their shared commitment, Andrew mentioned, EVs. Well, that's because all three of them, A, know they can't solve global climate by themselves, and B, want to be working together to put in place the infrastructure that will let us get to a better outcome. So I think that kind of is an explanation of why this resonates. But an issue that often doesn't get considered as a North American issue is the one that you both raised, which is migration. And Often migration is seen as a U.S.-Mexico issue. We know we focus on the border. We talk about the number of migrants from Latin America who come to the United States and how the U.S. is or is not managing those issues well. But Canada, on a per capita basis, is one of the countries, along with the United States, that is the most welcoming of new migrants. And in fact, the current government is committed by 2025 to accepting half a million people a year. Now, this is for a country that doesn't quite have 38 million people 
overall total, but they are a big country. They're a wealthy country. They've got room and they want to grow and they're welcoming to migrants. That matters crucially. As we saw in Los Angeles, some of the Americas that led to the Los Angeles Declaration, we have between um, Venezuela, Syria, and now Ukraine, almost 7 million people who are displaced around the world looking for a home. That number is only growing. And Canada is stepping forward to be part of the solution. And you know, you could add Haiti and other countries to the list. I think that changes the dynamic. It's less about us berating Mexico about not letting Mexicans up or Central Americans, and it's Canada stepping forward and saying, how can we help? And one area that came up uh, that I thought was extremely positive was a North American student mobility project building on the 100,000 strong in the America's Innovation Program. So college students getting to study. If you look at the European Union, one of the programs that is the most popular among young Europeans is the Erasmus program, where they can go to school in other European countries, uh, meet, date, uh, maybe even marry uh, uh, fellow Europeans and build the bridges that make the European Union stronger going forward. The idea that we're starting to think that way about North America and encourage more cross-border study is a great thing, particularly now, because all three countries are seeing a drop in the number of Chinese students coming abroad because of, of uncertainties with the relationship with China. And that's an opportunity to kind of fill those seats uh, with, with fellow people from the Western Hemisphere and, and fellow North Americans. We're also starting to see a real focus on professionals. And there are a lot of uh, refugees coming from Ukraine who have technical skills or Venezuela who know how to do oil industry activity, who can go to Alberta and other places. So working together to solve this problem uh, Canada is actually a contributor on migration. And that is one of the things that came out of this summit that I thought was both encouraging and, and really quite positive. And can I throw one other thing in? There's an interesting Canada-Mexico dialogue on indigenous issues, something very important to President Lopez Obrador, but also really important in Canada. Um, in both countries, we have indigenous poverty and, and indigenous communities that are struggling to maintain their culture and have a sense of respect from the mainstream cultures in each country. And the two countries have worked together surprisingly well. And one of the things that started it was an outreach from President Lopez Obrador um, suggesting that when we heard the horrible news that Canada had found um, the bodies of some children who'd been buried near indigenous uh, residential schools, a horrible uh, thing, it was, it was Mexico that reached out and said, we have, sadly, experience identifying human remains from the cartels and all the horrible things that have happened here. Can we help you? Because at least if we identify them, we can give the family some peace. Now, that's the kind of collaboration that shows Mexico as a smart, equal partner and a compassionate friend, not lecturing the Canadians and vice versa. That kind of thing is what comes out of these summits. It, it becomes a, a sort of personal thing that can translate into a lot of really good policy downstream. Yeah, and those intangibles are impossible to measure, but also important to recognize and not ignore because they are significant. Before we close this segment and turn to our colleagues to talk about Brazil, Andrew, I want to ask you about, you know, this took place, this return to normalcy, also trying to get back on our footing across the world in the wake of the pandemic, which is not over. Uh, any progress on the discussions among the nations on on how to fortify our healthcare systems if this should flare up again, or if we have another uh, uh, pandemic come our way. Yeah, thank you, John. That, that's a that's a great question, and and maybe I can I can answer that and answer the question I would anticipate you asking as a as a final one. 
which is to say that the, the leaders in the Declaration for North America did make a commitment to develop and launch a new revised NAPAPI, North American Plan for Animal and Pandemic Influenza. And I think that is indeed an effort to try to learn the lessons. And, and as we all know, there were health and economic impacts of the of the pandemic caused in part by our, our frankly, the, the poor ability of the three countries to coordinate management. So I think it is a positive step that they've made the commitment to do that. But to sort of anticipate a, a closing question, I, I think what all of us who are interested in North America have to do now is really monitor these commitments and, and hold our leaders accountable because a promise to update NAPAPI is in fact a wonderful thing. But if a year from now, we're still asking where it is, then I think you'd have to say the, that the NALS was not as much of a success. So I, I think they've put a lot of promises out there. They've made a lot of commitments that as, as you and Chris both said, really can have an important impact on North American citizens. But now we've got to see the governments actually deliver and get the help and support from stakeholders in the private sector and in academia, et cetera, where we can provide it. Chris has a quick final thought. I don't know if he's going to make a promise, but let's find out what he's uh, got. Well, here. I have to say two things. One, the NAPAPI update was in last year's summit declaration too. So we're already waiting. Second, um, Canada will host the next summit. We hope in 2023 calendar, maybe early 2024. Uh, I think that's a given. We're looking at capital, so probably Ottawa, but stay tuned. And third, I think one thing this discussion has proven is it's not two amigos. John, you're our third amigo. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm honored to, uh, to join the group. Gentlemen, thank you. That was a terrific recap and a look ahead. As always, your insights are greatly appreciated. Turning our attention to Brazil, two of our other America's 360 regulars, Latin American Program Acting Director Benjamin Gadan and Brazil Institute Senior Advisor Bruna Santos discuss the situation there. We have that interview for you now. Take a listen. Thank you very much, John and Bruna. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Bruna, you were outside Brasilia, in Brazil, during the events of January 8th. Those of us watching it from the United States and other parts of the world were, were deeply troubled by what we saw um, and also anxious about what it means for Brazil, what might happen over the next days, weeks and months. Before we talk about the implications for the new president and his agenda and his ability to unite a very fractured country, do you anticipate more violence in the near future? Yes, Benjamin, just like um, I, I think we saw it coming. We saw that it would not be easy for Lula, that his term would be a very challenging one. The election results clearly presented a contrast between two Brazils. Jair Bolsonaro was defeated by Lula by a slim margin of less than 2%. And the events on Sunday were clearly well planned. We saw it coming. The police force in Brasilia could have prevented, it, prevented this from happening. And um, they were, uh, the people on the streets, they, they were, um, as they were taking the, the buildings, they were uh, clearly expecting the military to intervene. They were calling for a military coup. Because, in fact, in Brazil, all the time limits, like the declaration of results, swearing in, inauguration, have passed. So it implies that the possibility of a coup at, at this moment is far more remote than 
on a Sunday with literally no one attending any type of meetings in the um, in the Palacio do Planalto in, in Congress and the Supreme Court. Also, I think worth saying that I fear uh, and I'm concerned about the possibility of um, domestic terrorism. Honestly, I think that the loyalty of Brazil's security forces and armed forces and the police are are questioned now. I think that the risk is real. I think that we saw anti-government um, groups um, threatening national security these days. I think that Besides the events on Sunday, we we had just like days before uh, the a person that was arrested because he was allegedly uh, allegedly uh, putting a bomb on an oil tanker near the Brasilia airport, and we saw this past week after Sunday electrical transmission towers uh, being knocked down, um, knocked over, and three other um, that were damaged in different states in Brazil. So we see different uh, examples of sabotage, of vandalism all over the country. Bruno, I want to be clear when you're talking about questions about the loyalty to the president, to the rule of law of members of Brazil's security forces. Obviously, the response by the forces that answer to the authorities in the capital, Brasilia, have come under question. But what about the national authorities? It seems like when Lula wanted to retake the capital and the democratic institutions, he was able to count on the security services that he called to rescue Brazil's institutions. Is that a correct observation, Bruno? Are we also concerned about the armed forces and national authorities? Well, Lula is concerned. He is, uh, and I think that the failure to prevent uh, such a thing from happening is something that the justice is already dedicating a lot of effort looking into and investigating. The reports after the attacks on, on Sunday have revealed that some members of the armed forces provided security for the invaders. It has been suggested by Brazil's intelligence service that um, there is some sort of parallel service working to protect uh, interests of Bolsonaro. And this week, Brazilian, Brazilian's newspapers uh, cited bureaucrats who have confirmed those rumors. Lula um, said that he will do like a thorough screening all over his cabinet and that no one that is cons considered a Bolsonarista will be working for him. So um, there is, it's clear that uh, that's his main concern, and that's one of the focus of the investigations that are unfolding by the justice. Bruno, we just have a minute or two, but going beyond the direct security threats to, to Lula, to Brazil's democratic institutions, what about governing more broadly? I mean, one of the clear lessons from what occurred beyond questions about the security of, of Brazil's Congress and presidential offices and Supreme Court, is that a lot of Brazilians strongly reject the legitimacy of the new government and its policies, the very right of Lula to be running this important country in the Western Hemisphere, this important partner of the United States, moving beyond the investigations. What does it mean for Lula's ability to govern Brazil and to advance the, the agenda that he was elected on? Well, just before I give you like some data that demonstrate the challenge that Lula has had, I want to say that I remain quite confident that he 
has the ability to keep Brazil away from the worst possible outcomes. I think that the government has demonstrated control and has been uh, has been uh, taking like very strong decisions also in the, 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 the judiciary as well. So just to give you an example, uh, a survey was uh, measuring the public's reaction to the events uh, showed that 75% of Brazilians disapproved um, the insurrection, but 40% did not believe that Lula was a legitimate winner of October's election. And f- almost 40% were in favor of a military intervention to annul the result of the presidential election. And I think that those uh, results show a little bit more about the challenge uh, of that Lula has ahead in terms of unifying the country. As he said in his in his uh, inauguration speech, he wants to govern for Brazilians, all Brazilians, not only the ones that voted for him. But I think he has a, a very big challenge ahead. He's not, uh, he's facing also um, a violent opposition, something that Brazil has never seen before in our history. Bruno, my last question for you is about what, if anything, the United States should be doing right now to safeguard the democracy and a key partner in the Western Hemisphere. There were great concerns in Washington about whether Bolsonaro would reject the negative electoral results. And you saw very quick congratulations from the White House and the State Department after the election to make sure that Bolsonaro didn't have the opportunity to, to contest the results of the election. Now we've seen that that the election and transition and inauguration of Lula were not enough and have not resolved the threats to Brazil's democracy, even though Lula has peacefully taken office. What role, if any, should friends of Brazil in the international community and above all the United States be taking right now to make sure that Brazil's hard-fought democracy remains vibrant? Well, I think I think the demonstrations uh, from the international community were extremely important uh, in terms of... Um, preventing the military to even like parts of the military that would perhaps back an effort to depose Lula from power. Um, I think it was really important to have the support from the international community to Lula and defending the institutions and the, the, um, the, the institutions and the, the, the governance. Joe Biden has expressed his outrage over the incident really quickly the same happened in other uh, countries in the continent, uh, Canada, Mexico, U.S., um, all over the world, democratic countries um, condemned attacks on Brazil's democracy. And I think that given the lack of support from international communities, it's unlikely that any um, anyone in the military would initiate or back any effort to depose Lula. I think that's one of the most important things. I think in the future, Brazil and other democratic countries, especially in the hemisphere, have to discuss more broadly how can we uh, rethink democracy and how can we defend democracy and also think how we're going to prevent such events to happen in other countries in the world and in, in the future. Bruno Santos, Senior Advisor to the Brazil Institute at the Wilson Center. Um, You've provided really excellent analysis on the ground in Brazil throughout this really difficult period. We've greatly uh, appreciated it. Thank you for being part of this conversation, too. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me. 
Back to you, John. Thank you, Benjamin and Bruna. I'm sure this is a topic we'll be revisiting in future episodes of America's 360. And that concludes this episode of the program, which was produced, as always, by Oscar Cruz, Cecily Facinella, and Zoe Reed. We thank you for your time and interest and hope you'll join us again for our next episode. Until then, from all of us at the Wilson Center and America's 360, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit WilsonCenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.